The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we are live, and this is episode, I believe, 63 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sites. Am I correct in saying that? Yes. one with Stridulum, so yeah, 63. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since we recorded together again, a couple weeks at least. So uh, uh, Daniel stepped up last week and uh, recorded an excellent intermission episode, so uh, thank you, Daniel. I, I wouldn't say excellent, but, uh, you know, it was certainly... No, it was pretty good. It was pretty, <laughs> it was, it was pretty good. You mentioned Trump, and you didn't just go into a 80-minute rant about it, so it was it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. We might <laughs> mention Trump tonight. Uh, we might. might. This might. <laughs> both, of these, both of these movies are huge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm your host, and I follow Directive 246, Don't Rush Traffic Lights. I'm Lee Russell. This is my co-host, Daniel Harper. He follows Directive 247. Don't run through puddles and splash pedestrians or other cars. How are you doing, Daniel? I am uh, part part man, I'm part machine, and I'm not a cop at all. So, <laughs> for the second movie we do, we're, we we got Paul back. Paul is alive. We've confirmed that he's alive, and he should be showing up for uh, the second movie we're going to be reviewing. But he does follow Directive Two Forty Eight. Don't say that you're always prompt when you are not. I, I, I thought I thought that was a perfect one. <laughs> I'm glad you took. I'm glad you took note of all these directives. Uh, because I have. I, I have all the other ones down here. I, I was. I was considering whether I wanted to uh, run through them or not tonight, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, see what we'll see. see what we're doing for time. But we'll see how drunk we get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we're back. Uh, we're finishing off a little bit of uh, sort of sci-fi break. Uh, we're going to be talking about RoboCop Two and Predator Two. So it also kind of ties into our little sequel discussion that we were talking about uh, a few episodes back. But before that, uh, we do have some comments, and I'll get into them right away. First one from our friend Stuart Balk from Midnight Movie Cowboys. He says, RoboCop 2 is such a letdown from the first one. However, it feels slightly prophetic, considering the drug epidemic the world is in. Can't remember, but I don't think I have ever seen Predator 2. Don't particularly get all the love for the original, for that matter. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think we'll we'll save our uh, responses to that for... Uh, our actual for thoughts our actual on the film. Discussion. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think so. uh, but thanks for the comments, Stu. We have two comments from Henry, who, uh, who listens uh, frequently, so uh, we'll get into these now. Uh, he said, I had a lot of comments ready, but most just boil down to great job. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you keep reviewing gems I love, offering novel critiques such as Daniel's on Blue Velvet, and offering new recommendations to keep both my family movie night and personal viewing fresh. Also, thanks for introducing me to Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts, and perhaps indirectly, the Projection Booth podcast. Uh, all they are missing is Daniel, apparently. <laughs> so, so, apparently, um, so apparently Mike Murphy from uh, Badass Boobs and Body Counts needs to steal you away from me, and uh, Mike White from uh, the Projection Booth needs to steal you away from me, I, I guess. Apparently, your commentary is that good. 
apparently, apparently people really like Henry disagrees with me politically on almost every issue, and yet obsessively listens to all my podcasts, which I find kind of fascinating, and I actually really appreciate it. I'd, I'd love to uh, get to chat with Henry about some of these movies sometime. Um, what I what I find uh, interesting is like the idea that they would steal me away from you. I mean, Lee, I can I can I can be on lots of podcasts. Like, there's no. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Don't worry, Lee. I'm not leaving you. I'm, I'm right. I'm here. I'm here for the long haul. Well, well, no... well, well, well. Here's here's the thing. Uh, I mean, uh, Mike Murphy from Badass Booze and Body Counts, you know, sort of pretends that he knows who we are. So you <laughs> right. know that that's that's really great. And uh, Mike White from Projection Booth, he he's never heard of us. Right. <laughs> they're they're yeah, so fine. they're so far up the fucking scale that uh, you know we, we're we're literally the ants that he's stepping on. Uh, <laughs> um. He says, further uh, gratis for closing your sequel discussion with a great Misfits song. Well, yeah, there you go. Uh, I love the Misfits, so there you go. Um, by the way, Midnight Movie Cowboys did a uh, podcast on the Misfits, if anyone's interested. Uh, go check them out. They did a really good job. Finally, forgive me if I missed it, but have you rated and compared the excellent remake of Night of the Living Dead? Funny you mention that. If you look on our Podbean site... Or if you just look through our archives on iTunes, you'll see that my brother and I did a sort of uh, incoherent uh, commentary track for the 1990 uh, Tom Zavini Night of the Living Dead. I don't know. Maybe we will compare them. As, uh, well, I think eventually we're going to do Night of the Living Dead anyway, the original. So yeah. it only makes sense that we'll bring up the remake as well and compare. So you know. I actually haven't seen the remake, so that would be an excuse for me to watch it as well. Sounds good. It's a plan. It's set in stone. <laughs> in like two or three years, we'll finally get around to that. <laughs> no, I, I think maybe um, we'll, 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 you know, we'll we'll find one of these um, totally uh, absurd anniversary shows. You know, like oh, on our hundred and tenth episode, we'll we'll do Night of the Living Dead or some shit like that. You know, what do you what do you say we do like tribute episodes to ourselves on every prime number? So, you know, for like 67 and then like 71 and then 73, we do like tributes, you know, looking back at the, you know. <laughs> well, you'll have to keep me abreast of those then because I was terrible at math. So oh, Okay, that's fine. <laughs> now he says, uh, this is the second email that we're getting into here. Um, I like some of the ideas you recently presented for future reviews. From Beyond is a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite combinations of body horror, funky science, Lovecraft, and Jeffrey Combs. Also, you should absolutely do one of those bad Christian fundamentalist films. Well, we're we're definitely planning on that. Um, He said, my wife was raised in that kind of household and lovingly had me watch some of them. (laughs) He's sort of asking how fundamental it is is some of uh, that stuff. The popular concept of the rapture is relatively new, and that's true. It knows itself to a radical interpretation of scripture by some radical theologians within just the last few hundred years, uh, like the uh, abominable uh, prosperity theology promoted by Joseph Prince and Joel Olstein. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> it, it really is a minority viewpoint within the greater and liberally defined umbrella of Christianity, although... I would probably argue that's probably the most vocal voice you see in the media uh, for a, a lot of uh, Christianity. Um, he says, well, you, his, uh, "Go ahead." Sorry, uh, I I just, was... he just, uh, you just said history is funny stuff sometimes. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, the thing is, like, you can't uh, separate in, in terms of um, kind of modern pop culture, modern understanding of, like, what evangelical, quote-unquote, evangelical with a capital E Christianity is with this sort of uh, politicized, you know, kind of Reagan-era moral majority stuff. I mean, it, it's all... Uh, the reason that we talk about it, the reason that it has such a huge presence is because it was overtly politicized so that Reagan could get votes in the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're still kind of living with the after effects of that. Um, I'm not I'm not religious. I kind of grew up religious. I have a complicated history with religion. And uh, maybe I'll talk about that when we do talk about those films. Um, but I was born and raised in Alabama. I know evangelical Christianity very, very well. Um, and I think that, in, you know, when we talk about the way that Christianity has been distorted and warped by political actors and by, you know, kind of religious actors, uh, you I can't overstate the importance of the fact that, you know, like the Southern Baptist Convention has just like completely obliterated any other idea about what Christianity is. Um, and I'm an atheist, you know, <laughs> like I yeah. can't, like I'm, I'm hugely sympathetic to people who have other views of Christianity than that, um, just because typically, you know, in the in the mass media, when you say Christian, people think you mean Jerry Falwell, and um, that's that's a shame. That's a damn fucking shame. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I think I think really, what I'd like to see is you know, Christians who are not like Jerry Falwell speaking out more for themselves, you know, and and taking that back from um, the right wing assholes who would pretend to speak for Jesus, you know, because that's not at all you know so that that's all i'm going to say to that you know at this point but uh yeah yeah and uh, i will say uh, apparently a movie we need to watch maybe and if we do our little uh our christian uh, movie series it, apparently uh darren anofsky's noah apparently that is worth watching uh, a friend of mine who is even more of a militant atheist than myself said he thoroughly enjoyed that one and not like in a so bad it's good kind of way like he was like this is the best possible uh interpretation of that story trying to make sense out of like really ridiculous bullshit <laughs> apparently I, I think i think doing a like a whole series on religious films might be interesting like uh, to to look at to look at our, our christian films or films looking at christianity i mean you know it's it, you know doing a left behind episode is going to be a huge amount of fun just because like yeah. those films and that theology is atrociously awful but looking at looking at films that are like last temptation of christ or like the the aronofsky noah or you know some other stuff that would have a more um interesting look at these kinds of issues i think would be an interesting series to do so i i mean i'm i'm down for anything but like the idea of like a pro like looking at aronofsky's noah which i haven't seen honestly but um you know i've heard some interesting things about it so yeah i wasn't going to watch it but uh, i'm actually interested in watching it now because uh, <laughs> uh like i said my friend he's a guy like i really respect his opinion on this sort of stuff so it's like if, if he said if he's like a he's he's like literally like a militant atheist who would like a punch a Christian out in the street. Like he, he's, he's that hardcore. And if he said this film was actually worth watching, I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm probably going to watch it. Um, and on, Hey, Mel Gibson is trying to get a sequel for passion of the Christ off the ground. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, isn't, isn't that really the, the, wasn't that just called weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, Christ is risen. Oh my God. He's still alive. 
<laughs> well, uh, I think that kind of settles it. We need to do Weekend at Bernie's at some point as well. <laughs> Passion of the Christ and Weekend at Bernie's. That's our that's our twofer for that episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so I think we can just jump into uh, what we've been watching the last little while, and um, I'll let you go first there, Daniel. Sure. Um, I have one movie that I actually watched a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't want to do it on the intermission where I was talking about the Westerns because it doesn't fit mm-hmm. into that. Um, that was kind of just one discussion I was trying to have. Um, although it's hard to have a discussion with one person. That's kind of what I ran into. I really admire podcasters who do full episodes by themselves, you know, because that's, you it's, it's a challenge. Did a really, I, I've heard, I've heard a lot of them and you've done a really good job. I'll say well, that. You, you do a, you do an even better job on your intermissions. So I, I, well, I thank you. Um, let's suck each other's dicks for a little bit longer now. Yeah. But first, um, I watched Equilibrium recently. Um, I had, I mean, I've oh, seen that's, that. Uh, that's what, Christian, Christian Bale. Christian Bale, okay. Yeah, uh, it's on Netflix. I, you know, I had seen that years ago, and uh, you know, saw it, and I'm like, oh yeah, look, you know, like really, all I was gonna do was just like put it on and then fast forward to the big action scene at the end, like that. I mean, I was just like, you know, oh fuck it, you know, like who who cares about the rest of the movie? But I ended up kind of sitting and watching it and kind of idly, you know, dicking around with my phone and stuff. But kind of, it holds up pretty well. I mean, it's it's uh, one of the better of the um, kind of uh, sci-fi kung fu movies that were made in the wake of The Matrix. It's kind of simultaneously deeply stupid and uh, fairly intelligent and incisive in some kind of interesting ways. Um, the action scenes, are uh, they actually hold up better than you would expect they would. I mean, they're kind of deeply silly, but also fairly effective at what they do like once you kind of admit the world of the film you kind of get like okay i get i'm kind of going with the action sequences um some really nice performances i think christian bale really like that's how he got the job as batman you know (laughs) yeah um you know i I really even even when batman begins being made i'm like oh somebody saw equilibrium and went oh this guy should be an action hero it kind of holds i mean it's it was it was a nice interesting watch and i think that people maybe should uh Check it out again if they haven't seen it in a while. It's 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 probably worth your time. No, I've I've never seen it. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because I I don't know. Uh, perhaps I have the total wrong impression with it, but I, it was like it looked to me like uh, Nazi stormtroopers in Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Harrison Bergeron. That that was the impression I got, but perhaps does, I'm totally wrong. It does have. I mean, it, it basically what the I mean the, the whole central metaphor is. You know, the dystopia is built on. So in order to uh, rid ourselves of war and poverty and disease and, you know, all these like kind of terrible impulses of humanity, people take this drug called Elysium, which uh, just removes all of your emotional response. Oh, and okay. so everybody's like a robot kind of walking around in this kind of and then um, your lead character uh, is a uh, member of the uh, the clerics. Uh, there's a bigger name for them, but I don't I didn't prepare to talk about this movie in any detail. So, um, but it is a member of these uh, like clerical class, and uh, they're they're like the the cops who are going around and like killing sense offenders and um, you know punishing them for their crimes of uh, you know not taking the drug and and you know collecting art. So essentially, this is a world in which there is no art, there is no feeling, there is no anything. Like all the architecture is completely like spare, and you know everything. And then uh, Christian Bale's character, who's like. The, the greatest cop in the world essentially um, doesn't take his dose and then starts to feel things and kind of like the process of him kind of coming to full humanity um, huh. and like some big action scenes that happen. It's worth seeing. I would, I would recommend you see it. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's kind of a little bit, <laughs> I mean, the, the uh, 
political commentary to it. I mean, it's it's a little bit obvious. I mean, it is kind of like Harrison Bergeron in that way, and that you know Harrison Bergeron is kind of this extremely overly simplistic kind of view of of what you know the kinds of ideas that Vonnegut is playing with there. I mean, I, I love I love Kurt Vonnegut. He's one of my favorite writers. Harrison Bergeron, I think, is simultaneously not quite as incisive as people kind of pretend it is, yeah. but it's also um, really misinterpreted, I think, by by a lot of people in terms of kind of what they think Vonnegut was trying to say. And it's only like five pages long. So I, you know, the fact that like, you know, I mean, it's over in a minute. I mean, it's, it's a really a trifle in, you know, Vonnegut's larger work, but um, Equilibrium is worth a try. If you haven't seen it, I, I would recommend it. All right. I, I actually probably will watch it then. Uh, sounds like a, uh, sounds like Nazis on planet Vulcan is, is what it, it sounds can, like. To... It can, it, like if the Vulcans became Nazis, like that yeah. is, that is kind of like that, that idea. Um, yeah, now I, now I kind of wanted an episode on it, actually. Like, knowing you <laughs> haven't seen it, I kinda, I'm like, yeah, it might be interesting to actually chat about. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, we'll, no, it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth checking out. Well, we'll put it on the master list, then. Cool. Uh, the only other thing I, I just wanted to mention, I've been uh, re-watching the U.S. version of The Office lately. Okay. It's um, kind of my idle before bed watching. That's a show I didn't expect to hold up. I was really like, oh, no, this is going to be terrible now. Um, you know, the, it's like more than 10 years later, like this, you know. And that was a show that I loved. I actually, that's one of the few shows I actually watched episode by episode, like starting with season two, you know. I watched that. I didn't watch the last season because it, it actually did get really bad. I uh, I did um, watch that for, for quite a few years, you know, week by week. I really, really enjoyed it, and I thought, oh, it's not going to hold up at all. But it's a... Uh, it's holding up for me. I'm really enjoying it. And I can't tell right now if it's just like nostalgia for it mm-hmm. or if it actually is a, a pretty decent show that I'm, I'm enjoying it. And that's, I just wanted to mention that that's what I've been watching lately is I've been rewatching the office. Yeah. All right. Uh, I watched a couple things. I'll just be really brief about these. Um, sure. I, I watched this uh, on Netflix. This is one I've sort of passed by a couple times and I finally decided, ah, oh, fuck, I watch it. It's called Sushi Girl from 2012. Are you aware of what a sushi girl is? As far as uh... I, I have, I have thoughts about what a sushi girl might be, but um, uh, it, hold on, is this a woman who's trying to break into becoming a sushi chef? No. Okay. Not at all. Uh, is, this it the, is... is it the nude women who uh, have sushi placed upon them? Yes. Yes. Those are my two guesses. So, and I was really going for the for the more. Uh, I thought it was probably the naked woman, but I I I went for the other interpretation first. So there is uh, a lot of naked women in this film. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, so it, essentially, it's this. Um, it's about this girl who is the titular sushi girl, uh, titular mm-hmm. in more ways than one. Um, sure. Who is basically the hired sushi girl for this conference of uh, all these criminals who pulled off a job six years ago. So they're, they're getting together because one of them recently just got out of prison and he knows the location apparently of the diamonds that they uh, stole from this heist and uh, they haven't gotten them back. So that's the pretense for the whole thing. And basically the sushi girl is sitting there listening to them, keeping totally still with, uh, you know, raw fish placed on all of her uh, parts while they're, you know, bickering between each other. Um, it's actually kind of entertaining in a way because all the actors in it are good. Mark Hamill is in this before he lost all the weight again for Star Wars. Uh, so, you know, a fat uh, kind of Klaus Kinski uh, doing, um, uh, what, 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 what's his name? Dude who um, dude who wrote In, in Cold Blood. Uh, oh, Truman Capote. Truman, yeah, it's, he's essentially... 
He's essentially looks like Klaus Kinski playing Truman Capote. This sounds amazing. Is this on Netflix? Can I go it's, watch this right now? It's on Netflix, yes, right now. All right, um, awesome. So the performances are good. Like, it's got Mark Hamill, it's got Tony Todd, it's got a couple other really good actors. Uh, it is the quintessential end game of the Quentin Tarantino ripoff film, essentially. Like, it is slickly made, it looks really good, a lot of snappy dialogue, not much substance. The twist ending, you can see it coming from a mile fucking way. So it's like a one-watch kind of film, and you never want to watch it again, honestly, unless you want to see the titular Sushi Girl Naked, uh, which you can just do in clips on the internet anyway, uh, which is which is worth it, by the way, because she's fucking hot. Um, is, it, is it better than uh, Kill Me Three Times? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually really slickly done, well-made, and everything like that. It's just It's just one of those films where once you get to the end, you never need to see it again because the twist is, you know, and you're done. Uh, but good performances, uh, especially Mark Hamill. He's fucking amazing in this. Like, I'm, I'm watching Mark Hamill and just enjoying every fucking thing he's saying and doing in it. It was just like, wow, that's actually probably... I would, I would dare say that's his best performance uh, outside of Batman the Animated Series. Mark Hamill got robbed of a, like, really great career as a character actor by being Luke Skywalker. I mean, yeah. there, you know, you can't feel bad for him for, you know... <laughs> The 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 kind of being Luke Skywalker, but he, he's a really phenomenal actor, and I think uh, yeah, I I'm, I'm actually putting this on my list. I, I can't wait to see this. Actually, I, I'm like you know I, the the those uh, those kind of um, really terrible post Tarantino post Guy Ritchie uh, kind of rip off crime films. I actually have a like an abiding guilty pleasure love of them. So um, I, I even I couldn't get through Kill Me three times. But uh, if this is better than that, then I will. Uh, it, it, it is better than that, although it does really have, um, I will say it has a lot of elements of like torture porn in it as well. Like it, it's sure. a pretty, it's a pretty hardcore film. It is pretty entertaining. And I mean, uh, I would give it, you know, slight recommendations. It's worth fucking watching. Another one I'll mention is Four Brothers from 2005. This is one of those uh, Mark Wahlberg films where they are you know, trying really fucking hard to make Wahlberg the next big fucking action star and never really sort of panned out because he's shit. Like, I'm sorry, I I, I, fought, I can't stand him on anything I see him in. Basically, he's he's kind of terrible. Um, Boogie Nights and Date Night, but only because, Date Night because he's in like three minutes of that. Yeah. And his whole job is to 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 be attractive to Tina Fey. Like that's it. Well, is, isn't he in The Departed too? Oh, he is in The Departed. Yeah, right. he's that, he's the worst part of The Departed, right? Yeah, yeah. That the, the Departed and Boogie Nights is what I'd say is worth watching, but I, I fucking hate. Mark Wahlberg. I, th- I think he sucks. And most of the movies that are built around him are garbage. This one is no exception, really. This is just like this really... I don't know. I, I don't want to say I was offended by it, because really, most things don't offend me, but I, I just kind of felt like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> this this movie about these four guys who um, are all adopted brothers of this uh, this woman who's, you know, this saintly uh, woman who adopts street kids and tries to bring them up right and whatever... And she gets killed, and then these four brothers come together, and then they decide, hey, we're going to go around our old town, our old stomping grounds, and find out who the people were who killed her and make them pay. And there's just a lot of shooting and killing and bullshit without any consequences. And actually, the four brothers are all kind of reprehensible pieces of shit that I didn't feel like cheering for at all. 
it's an incredibly well-made film. It's slickly produced. It looks great. Everything here was in place to try to make Mark Wahlberg look like fucking gold. And I was just like, after watching, I was like, is that it? Like, that's just so bad. It's so terrible. And uh, I, I, ha- I haven't seen it. I just I saw the trailers for it and went like, oh, how John Singleton has fallen. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, do everything to make this look cool too. Like uh, they have some old cars that sort of make remind you of the seventies in there. Well, and, this is this is kind of that like post Tarantino like the responses to Tarantino, right? Yeah, because it was like, oh yeah. no. We're making crime films, and we're not going to do the like pop culture thing, and we're going to make them kind of gritty in seventies. So we're going to kind of do like kind of like we're trying to do the Friends of Eddie Coyle and mm-hmm. you know, the conversation. We're trying to do those kinds of films again, but they all just tanked. You know, <laughs> like it's just yeah. the, the, um, the, the, like it, the, it just got really obvious really fast what they were trying to do. You know, yeah. The the best thing about this film is the soundtrack, and you you can buy the soundtrack. You don't have to watch the film. Okay. <laughs> so so there you go. Uh, <laughs> I'd be willing to bet the soundtrack is on YouTube if you. Uh, oh, probably. Go look for it. Yeah, you don't have to fucking buy it. Another one I watched is uh, Cell, which is based on the Stephen King novel. Been sitting on the shelf for two years before it was finally released, uh, video on demand, and I think it's going to have a small theatrical release. But uh, man, uh, that's the lot- only way you can possibly get an Oscar. So you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're they're really up for an Oscar on this one. I'll tell you, I didn't necessarily think too much of Stephen King's book, like. It was it was you know bad enough that I don't really have any memories of it after reading it you know like it's just eh, it's there it, you know it's it's like latter day Stephen King where very few moments of brilliance a lot of just wet farts basically on the page there was so much potential for this film but you can see it's unfinished like you, you look at the special effects and stuff they were put in after the fact after this had sit on the shelf bad CGI that really hurts the film. Uh, and it's, it's a shame because uh, John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson, they have their chemistry from 1408, which was actually pretty decent. It's still there. They're kind of good. Um, the rest of the film just falls flat around them. It doesn't pull off its gimmick. Like it, It's essentially a zombie-infected film to a certain degree, but the gimmick, of course, is that this pulse through this all, cell phones everywhere in the world turns people into like mindless killers. And, if you, of course, if, you're, if you weren't on a cell phone at the time of the pulse, then you're safe, you're a normal person, and then you have to deal with all the shit around you, right? There's some interesting ideas, but in the book, and the movie doesn't really explore them at all. The movie looks all right when you're, you know, not going into the special effects shit. And, yeah, it was just a big disappointment. I can see why it's set on the shelf for two years. I guess some of the financial stuff fell through, distributors fell through. This movie probably should have never been released, actually. It's just kind of a sad... Uh, it's it's like you prop up a corpse. <laughs> and, Wasn't the book from like two thousand or something? I mean, isn't the book like many years old at this point? Yeah, like uh, like it does feel. I, I actually read your Letterboxd review, and I I uh, I was like, hold on, they made that into a movie, and then like, oh shit, that was a Stephen King novel from like when I was a teenager, basically. And I'm sitting there, and I'm and I'm kind of thinking, like, why are you? What does a novel released in the year 2000 have to say about cell phones today? Yeah, you know, like, like very I mean, outdated. There was a uh, an episode of uh, Ray Bradbury presents back in the 80s <laughs> that like dealt with uh, like the kind of um, oncoming like like people having electronics in their pockets, and you know, this guy, uh, this uh, basically this guy like uh, shutting them off, you know, like like uh, terror, uh, not terrorizing, but like a uh, 
he he would like break their phones and their you know like um your know, recorders and stuff and was mm-hmm. like no interact with people as people and so and even that felt a little bit like you know behind the times by you know yeah. this kind of technophobic uh, yeah I love Ray Bradbury but you know th- there was this kind of sense of like even then like oh come on stop stop being such a dick about this so I can only imagine that that just fundamentally I would kind of look at it and just be like what what are you complaining about I mean a little bit like you know why don't people have color TV TVs, you know, like it's <laughs> wasn't black and white good enough for you, you know. I just yeah. I, don't know, I, I mean, and, I kind of. Uh, I mean, it's a good. There's an inter- there's interesting stuff you could do with like sort of the culture around cell phones and things like that. Because I'm I'm a very anti cell phone person. Like I don't own one, and I fucking hate them. Like aggressively hate them. This movie doesn't address that really at all. Like it had the potential to address a lot of things around cell phone culture how uh, people spend more time on their day on cell phones than talking to people, really. And the ending really sucks. Like, it's it's one of those endings that sort of pulls the rug out, out from under your feet, and it's just bullshit. Uh, Stephen King actually wrote the script for this thing and rewrote the ending for it, and he should have just stuck with his original ending. I mean, Jesus Christ. They, they threw some money his way, and he went, sure. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It, it's just it it was terrible, and I would say it's terrible. I mean, if you read my letterbox review, I sort of gave it like a very mild recommendation. But uh, and I mean, I I will say like again, the chemistry between John Cusack and uh, Samuel Samuel L. Jackson was pretty good, and I did appreciate that Samuel L. Jackson was in this modern age a gay character who was not this flamboyant gay stereotype. It was he was just another guy. Sure. Like oh yeah oh yeah he happened to have a husband and he talked about him. And actually, I was kind of hoping there was more. They were going to talk more about his character, but he was just kind of a sideline character to John Cusack, and it's like, well, well, this movie sucks. Eh. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to bother to watch this. You know? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, unless you're really like, if you're a hardcore Stephen King fan, then maybe. But you know, yeah, eh. I'm not so. You know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about the other two movies that I watched. I don't think. Because they were just superhero hero films, and no one needs to fucking hear about those things. Not in this. Nobody day cares age. about superheroes. Let's uh, let's not talk about the superhero films that people are spending billions of dollars to go see. Let's talk about direct-to-video John Cusack movies instead. Yeah. I'm totally in favor of this plan. <laughs> uh, let's just jump right into uh, RoboCop Two from 1990. Gave this city Robocop. Ready for duty, partner? Nothing I'd rather do. I think he's worked out pretty well. Have a seat. This is a bust. But things have become a little rougher out there. This unit needs millions of dollars in parts. You see, Robocop's off warranty. He's one of mine, and I want him back on his feet. I believe that Murphy's case was unusual, but not unique. We can find someone else, someone to whom the prospect might even be desirable. And now, we need a law enforcement unit capable of meeting the enemy on his own ground. She's screaming psychotic, sir. We are planning to build a toy and carry in a firepower to get the job done. I got good news for you. You're going to have a chance for immortality. 
With great pleasure, I give you Robocop 2. Ah, uh, yes. Things will be a lot quieter with this boy around. That thing is a killer! Kane! Let's step outside. You! You're obsolete! Take it over, creep. Uh, directed by Irvin Kirshner, written by Frank Miller and Wallen Green, starring Peter Weller as Alex Murphy, Murphy slash Robocop, Nancy Allen as Officer Ann Lewis, Belinda Bauer as Dr. Juliet Fax, Dan O'Hurley as the old man, or the OCP president, uh, Felton Perry as OCP vice president, Donald Johnson, Tom Noonan as Kane, Roger Aaron Brown as Whitaker, Willard E. Pugh as Mayor Marvin Cusack, Gabriel Damon as, as Hobb, Galen Grog as Angie, Stephen Lee as Officer Duffy, Robert DeQuy De- as uh, Sergeant Reed, uh, and Frank Miller here as Frank, the drug chemist. And I'll throw the synopsis over to you, Daniel. Robocop 2 is a film that is all incident with little consequence. A film that tries to simultaneously provide action-adventure thrills and a parable about the consequences of privatizing public infrastructure. Sometime in the 21st century, the city of Detroit has been placed under the management of the Omni Consumer Products Corporation, or OCP, who have deliberately created a crime wave by cutting police salaries by 40% and withholding their pensions, causing a massive police strike. Scabbing against their fellow officers are Robocop, Peter Weller, and his partner Ann Lewis, Nancy Allen. Responding to hyperviolent riot-in gangs, the two operate on a strictly shoot-first-and-ask-questions-later basis, which somehow manages to make them respected by their fellow police officers, despite not participating in the strike. Or maybe the other police officers are especially open to their jobs being taken by automation? The film doesn't quite clarify. Anyway... The film's major antagonist is the designer drug kingpin Kane, Tom Noonan, who is operating his criminal operation producing a highly addictive and debilitating nuke in an impunity during the police strike, aided mostly by his romantic partner Angie, Galen Gorg, and the child killer Hob, Gabriel Damon. In what is probably an unrelated B-plot, the big wigs at OCP are working to create a new and improved Robocop 2, with decidedly negative results as all potential candidates have killed themselves upon being transformed into the cyborg state. What a surprise it is when roboticist and psychologist Dr. Juliet Fax, Belinda Bauer, does the impossible and places Kane's brain inside a robotic exoskeleton, ensuring his compliance by controlling his supply of nuke. Other subplots in the film involve the Detroit mayor, Marvin Cusack, Willard E. Pugh, protesting the OCP's ownership of the city and attempting to pay off their debts first with a telethon and then by getting into bed with the drug cartels, the neutering of Robocop by implying him with a list of hundreds of Mayberry-esque rules of etiquette, and the robbery of an electronics store by what appears to be a Little League baseball team. Everything, of course, comes to a head when the two Robocops battle for the soul of Detroit in a climactic final fight sequence, and though the good Robocop reigns supreme, the truly evil masterminds in charge of the OCP live to do their dastardly deeds another day. What can we do, though? As Robo says in the film, we're only human. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, when's the first time you saw this film? I saw this film when I was, uh, it, it came on uh, HBO, I guess, in like 1991. And I, I, we recorded it off of HBO, and I watched it incessantly as a child. And did, did you like it a lot when you were a kid? Because like, were you like a fan of the original, and you're like, oh, this is really cool? The thing was, like, um, and this is actually something I was going to get into and why these two films in particular I wanted to kind of do together, because these are both films that, like, I saw, like, I've actually seen the sequels more than the originals. 
Mm-hmm. Because like when I got HBO and they came on and I taped them, but I didn't have access to the originals because the originals had been off air, you know. So so it was sort of like I had seen the original. I've seen the original a couple of times. I kind of know the original, but I don't know it nearly as well as the sequel because I saw the sequel a bunch as a kid and really didn't know the original. I really liked this movie despite not having a deep connection to the original, just kind of liking the original. If I'd had the original access to the original, I'm sure I would have watched that as well, but I didn't. And so that's kind of my relationship with both of these films, just to, just to kind of clarify. Yeah. Cause I I gotta say like this and predator two is what you see more on TV, honestly, like growing up, I, I did see both originals before I saw the, the sequels. I see this more on TV. Like, this plays... I guess this plays more on TV better because it's more of a dumb action film. Like, Robocop... Right. The original Robocop is kind of a really smart movie. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in that film that probably doesn't play as well. This is more action-based. This is more very simple and to the point. Well, there's I, a lot of stuff happening, right? Like there's yeah. a lot of, there are a lot of, like that was kind of what I was trying to get at with the, with the, uh, the synopsis is there's a, not even that much action, but what there is is fairly decently directed and everything. And there's like, it's, there's kind of this clear through line, but there's a lot of stuff that kind of happens and then gets dropped, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it kind of feels like something you can kind of watch eight minutes of a time yeah. on TBS on a Saturday afternoon or whatever. So it does kind of make sense that they would show this on, on a TV more. I'm assuming the rights to this are just easier to buy. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, you I, know. I would as well, yeah. When it starts out, the opening sequence, which is about, I don't know, five to ten minutes, something like that, it does have a lot of the sort of uh, cynical humor and satire that the original Robocop had, which made it so good. Mm-hmm. But after that opening sequence, it's really gone. Like after the re- throughout the rest of the film, the rest of the film's much more. Uh, it's very comic book, but it's not smart. It's really so. so there's this central idea to it, which is and um, this the, there's there's this kind of political idea to it, which is something that's very very real in 1990 when it was made, and it's still very real today which is the idea that sort of um, public infrastructure, public uh, resources are being sold off to private companies to the lowest bidder. The infamous example, at least for, for me, the one that always comes to mind is like the city of Chicago sold their parking meters to a private company. Yeah. And so uh, what used to be like a 25 cent, you know, parking fee is like $5 now. I mean, and, it's, yeah. it's, and, and basically what the city of Chicago did was they sold off the, the rights to the parking meters to temporarily um, fill a hole in the budget, which was a systemic budget problem. And then like five years later, the problem came back even worse and they just kept selling off more and more resources. That's kind of what this film is trying to be about. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the kind of central idea behind the film, but it has like no connection to the actual events that are occurring on screen. It's just sort of this thing that's kind of in the undercurrent. It's below the surface, but not in any sense kind of ever like coming up and, and actually you know, really becoming something prominent in the film. The same stuff was coming out in the original Robocop, and I think it was just done a lot better. Like, this, it's much more just really just kind of window dressing to, this is a big dumb action film where Robocop gets to shoot a big robot at the end. Right, (laughs) yeah. I mean, doesn't the ending kind of remind you of the first Iron Man film in a way? (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) it's kind of of the same ending, right? I mean, I was sitting and rewatching this, and I'm like, my God, it's just, wow. How how much I loved that final action scene, you know, when I saw it when I was a kid, 
and how just I mean it, it still it still kind of works like the stuff I loved about it is still there but man it's just kind of I don't know one of the things I almost I almost wanted to summarize these two films together because it does kind of feel <laughs> like they're both kind of coming out of the same you know some of the same ideas you kind of explore and so we'll kind of I guess talk about it a little bit more um, as we go on but it does kind of feel like there's this this is that moment right before. CGI, right? Like this is that yeah. moment right before like T2 came out the next year and just changed the way, like the entire way that we did these kinds of movies. And so this is kind of like, you still got like stop of stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. You've still got, you know, like, like all practical effects. And this is kind of the, the, like the ending of that. And so there is almost this sort of sense of, you know, sadness that I get in kind of watching these and kind of being like, this is the, you know, this was the peak. This was the peak of this sort of idea. And then after this, they would, you know, everything would go CGI like all the time for a few years until they finally started going. A mixture of the two things is actually what we wanted to. I I don't even know if this is a peak. I kind of argue that this, this and Predator 2 both came out in 1990 and they're both kind of the tail end of the whole action film boom in the eighties. Right. right. This is really where they're slowing down. And like after this, you start getting, uh, well, a couple years after this really, but you you start getting like Steven Zagal direct the video (laughs) instead of in, in in the fucking theater. The effects in this, you're saying, like, stop motion's really good. But, I mean, point of view shots from Robocop's uh, vision. Um, apparently, the interface in it is, like, based off MS-DOS. That's <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, And Kane's, apparently, uh, his vision is based off the fucking operating system from Apple. Like, it's like an Apple-based kind of thing, which, of course, is kind of an MS-DOS ripoff anyway, but right. that's beside the point. And all the, spe- all the special effects outside of the fucking uh, stop-motion stuff were actually generated by a Commodore Amiga computer. <laughs> well, I mean, that was 1990, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. I wanted to mention the effects just because it, it's important to kind of talk about, like, this was that moment. And I wasn't saying this is, like, the artistic peak. It's more like this is, like, the, the kind of technical peak in, in some ways. You know? Yeah, okay, I, I can see um, that, yeah. Like, this is as good as that stuff was ever going to look before CGI, because yeah. it's right before CGI kind of took over. I certainly wouldn't argue this is, like, any kind of artistic peak of any kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, there's some interesting stuff here. Uh, I always, like, kind of thinking about this film over the years, I always remember the um, reprogramming of RoboCop with uh, all the directives to be a much bigger piece of the film than it is. But it's really only, like, a little 10-minute subplot, you know. Um, I always think of that as, like, the central theme of the film. But it's not. I mean, it, it's barely in the film, really. And all the subplots are kind of like that. You know, the, yeah. um, the mayor, you know, doing the telethon and then the mayor trying to, you know, find the money to to pay OCP and, uh, you know, the kind of creation of RoboCop 2, the sequence where uh, you see all the different RoboCop 2s, you know, killing themselves and killing the people around them, you know. Uh, all there, There's all this stuff that happens in the movie, but hardly any of it actually goes anywhere. Um, yeah, none, none of it matters. It's just, like, dropped. You're right. Yeah. It, I mean, this this really could be like a twenty minute movie, you know. Like, yeah. You know, Robocop Robocop Two is created. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost the sort of thing to where if you were gonna write this, it would almost be better to introduce Robocop Two earlier and have him be a more kind of credible threat against Robocop. You know, kind of have your your opening sequence where Robocop fights Kane, 
captures Kane earlier in the film, and then uh, you know have all the other stuff, and then have like several battles over the course of the film between the two Robocops. Yeah, which would definitely kind of raise the stakes in a more you know kind of interesting way, and you would get you know more interesting action sequences and stuff. It's weird because Kane is essentially like the, you know, the upgraded substitute version of Ed 209 from the first film. Uh, But this film basically ignores the whole point of what Ed 209 was about in the first film. Ed Ed 209 was supposed to represent failure. It was never supposed to be a credible threat to Robocop. It it was supposed to represent the the short-sighted failure of, uh, mechanization you know try, trying to make a, a a super cop that was had no human elements behind it or whatever you know like it, it just right. and and here they're more interested in we need a credible foe that can fight robocop and well we, and need, the, we need like the big version we need like yeah. you know robocop with like machine guns and shit you know and you know and better armor although i will let me let me just say like there is this sort of hint of like satire and uh, I mean they're like the little league team that's like stealing stereos and shit, yeah. you know? like which is <laughs> I'm going to talk about this more when we get to Predator Two because it's way more prevalent in Predator Two, but it's 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 you know the idea like the way that crime just works in both of these films mm-hmm. is like completely like oh my god it was the middle of the first Bush administration. Like, like, <laughs> this is. So basically the film like has this sort of idea of how like crime works that is completely based on this like kind of middle America suburbanite idea of what like crazy brown people are going to do if there aren't <laughs> like police out there. And again, this is way, way more prevalent in Predator 2. I'm just so mm-hmm. I'm just gonna save it for that discussion. But um yeah, the idea that like uh kind of a uh, uh, crazy Mexican-sounding people are going to just, like, completely, like, uh, go crazy and steal stereos, and even small children are going to be, you know, dealing drugs and such if there aren't, if there isn't a strong police presence, uh, you know, out there that will just out and out murder people. Like, that's yeah. that's all RoboCop does in the film. He just mm-hmm. murders people. RoboCop walks into situations completely invulnerable. Bullets bounce off of him. Nobody aims for his faceplate. Nobody yeah. ever aims for his face. <laughs> Nobody ever says, "Oh, that little little bit of skin where his mouth is. Maybe I should aim at that." No, they aim for his chest. Yeah. This is a bad move. He never gets even fucking dented. RoboCop can be the perfect negotiator. Hey, RoboCop can walk in and actually like make these people chat with him. He could arrest them easily. No, he just shoots them in the head. That's what well, RoboCop's purpose is. Well, isn't this like just a totally different RoboCop than the one in the first film? Yeah. At the end of the first film, it's basically basically RoboCop has regained his humanity. He's mm-hmm. he he might be a cyborg, but he's a person again with with thoughts and feelings. In this film, it's like between the two films, someone fucking reprogrammed his ass and made him an automaton again because he's just he's just walking through saying robotic things and shooting people. Like, he's he's not even a character in this film, really. No. They, they have a little bit of the subplot with him driving past his old house and, and, and spying on his wife and kid, but it never goes anywhere. It, it ends at a, we're suing you. You stay away from them. <laughs> and you know I mean, it's it's basically like they weren't interested in that subplot anymore and they yeah. needed to revert him so that they could do the other stuff. I find it I mean I find it interesting that like Frank Miller 
co-wrote this, and I don't know to what you know where Frank Miller kind of came in the situation. Well, he was he was he was originally brought in, and there was like a massive amount of fucking rewrites. I mean, uh, uh, the guy they they brought in to rewrite uh, Wall and Green. He did. I think he. I think he was part of. I think he was on the Wild Bunch, if I'm not mistaken. He he was brought in and he rewrote a bunch of stuff. Like there's there's still a lot of stuff that Frank Miller wrote that stayed in this, but a lot of it was cut out. And honest, and he actually Frank Miller actually published like a comic book series after the fact that basically reconnected his, his entire story and used everything that he wanted to use. And apparently most people did think that was a very good story because that, that comic book's not highly rated apparently from what I can see. But, and I mean, honestly, Frank Miller is, he, he get like, there's a lot of fanboys for him, but he's kind of, Frank, Frank Miller's kind of become a, a fascist at this point. Can we just say like, yeah, Frank Miller's yeah. a fascist. he has, he has certain, uh, strong man, uh, ideological authoritarian tendencies that, um, Actually, Frank Miller is the kind of person that was satirized by the original RoboCop. Like, like, isn't that the point of the original? Mm-hmm. That once you create this Superman with no feelings, you can come in and just like kill the bad guys for you. That everything falls apart if this thing has any feelings whatsoever. Essentially, like, yeah. isn't that kind of what the film is about? It's kind of surprising rewatching it that I that I watched this as many times when I was a kid. I just thought RoboCop was badass, and I really mm-hmm. liked like I I was uh, in tune with the satire. Like I got the satire and the kind of the and all that stuff, but I totally didn't see how awful the stereotyping was and how awful the the kind of ideology that was being put forward was. There are some interesting ideas here, almost vestigially from the original, and, and yeah. sort of like, I mean, there's really nothing here that makes it even justifiable to talk about it, except like it's just kind of, I mean, it's just kind of a goofy action movie at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's, like, it's really know. shallow. I mean, if fucking Paul uh, Verhoeven or whatever his fucking name is, like, passes up on it because it's like, nah, this isn't really good. Well, he went on to do Total Recall, which yeah, is he went... actually a good movie. You yeah. Know what I mean? <laughs> we're going to pay you this much for this shitty film. He's like, no, I'm going to get paid more for Arnold Schwarzenegger's film. Even if they, and apparently in total recall, they they like gave him like hours to agree to it after reading the script. Like right, yeah. <laughs> they bullied him into it, but it's like, Hey, I'm getting paid lots of money for that. So why not? But yeah, this is, I think that's the biggest problem with this one is like, it's a competent action film. It has all the stuff that you expect from an action film of this period of time, but it's just so fucking shallow and it's, devoid it's, of character. It's, it's that kind of, uh, there, there are some, I mean, there are some interesting ideas bubbling underneath, like that, that kind of reflect what late eighties, early nineties kind of sci-fi action cinema was doing. You know, the kid who's uh, kind of the drug, the drug Lord guy. Yeah. is an interesting character. The relationship between uh, Angie and Kate and Kane is sort of an interesting idea. Um, the idea that a designer drug, like, like and of course, this is like, like nuke is like heroin, and it's like this thing, that, like there are different flavors and varieties. <laughs> you know, they're, like they're trying to play with like consumerist ideas. Like there's a lot of stuff that like taken in isolation, like that's an interesting idea. But the film really doesn't do anything at all with it, you know, and it just kind of becomes like big dumb action movie. And not even in the way that like, okay, we're going to make a big dumb action movie, satirizing big dumb action movies, but like delivers some interesting content nonetheless. Uh, it, it just kind of feels like perpetually half-baked. Yeah, and uh, I also got to say like um, Nancy Allen's character is, what's she, Lewis in the... Hold on, hold on, she has a character? 
Yeah, that's, that's what I was about to say. She is totally degraded from the first film. Like, in, in even in the first film, she's not really that broadly drawn or anything, but she's basically a budget Linda Hamilton in the series. It's just kind of sad. And then they even kill her off in the third one. Like, it's just like, we don't need her anymore. <laughs> I've seen the third one once in a TV edit on the Sci-Fi Channel um, several years after it was, like in, nine, like in 98 or 99. And I never intend to ever come back to it. In fact, I've, I know I'll rewatch the first one, but other than that, I'll probably never do anything else that was ever in the RoboCop franchise again. No, uh, the, the third one's even more comic book than this, and it's bad comic book at that right. point. Not, not, not like, you know, modern, like, what we consider good comic books. No, no, no. I'll say even the fucking score in this is a letdown. Like, they don't use uh, Basil Poldaris anymore. Like, they, they have uh, Leonard Rosenman doing his score on this, and it's just like, it's fucking weak sauce. Like, I was looking through YouTube for stuff I could use for music, and I was like, I can't use anything from this fucking score for the podcast. Like, it's <laughs> shit. It's total shit. I'll say the only thing, I think probably the only thing, like, really pertinent from this film, honestly, that I sort of take away from it is that it's actually not too far removed from what would actually happen to Detroit in the near future. That's the, that's sort of the thing that's actually kind of drew me into it, rewatching it. Mm-hmm. is this sort of idea that they really were trying to like put a finger on this idea that there are these like corporate actors who are trying to take public resources and turn them into into private you know this yeah. this is this is neoliberalism this is what this is this is like the thing that is like creating like societies that are dysfunctional in western democracies this is the terrible, terrible legacy of, of this era. And the fact that this is actually a contemporaneous, like this is when this was really kind of at its height, when they were real, when people were actively fighting against it, like now we just accept it as this is just the way life is. Yeah. But this was right at that time and it correctly diagnoses this problem, but in no way responds to it in an intelligent <laughs> way, you know? And, and that's, that's kind of the, like the fun, like that's the thing with RoboCop too. Like I watch it and I'm like, there, there are some really, really interesting ideas that it's touching on. I mean, uh, this became. I mean, I live in the state of Michigan. Detroit looms large in the kind of public consciousness around here, and like what happened to Detroit. And I have definite opinions about this stuff, but I will, I will leave it aside for now. This film got kind of uh, brought up in the media, you know, in 2014 when the city of Detroit had to declare bankruptcy or was was mm-hmm. you know, kind of on the verge of it. And, uh, you know, like, oh, RoboCop 2 predicted that, you know, 24 years ago. Yeah, because, like, it's the exact same fucking phenomenon. Like, RoboCop 2 correctly said, like, this is something that's going to be really, really terrible. Of course, there are different, you know, circumstances that happened that actually led to that. But I think more interestingly, like this, this kind of represents just the way that we live now. So much of this has just kind of become reality. The film ends in this kind of weird way because it is kind of like RoboCop doesn't go after these guys. RoboCop yeah. goes after you know Kane and, and the other robot, but the 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 real bad guys get away with it. And that's a really real like that's fucking bleak. Like that's fucking like that's a really interesting way to end your big dumb action movie, but it kind of it doesn't really land that punch, right? It, it no. doesn't it doesn't really and, do anything about it. It just kind of that's just how it ends, you know. And they kind of ignore it by the by the third film, the old man character. He just wasn't cast in the third film, and his character isn't really even really talked about. He's just like he's just a corporate guy who's gone in the third film, and then he's replaced by Rip Torn of all people. 
<laughs> which is the only good thing in that film, honestly, is Rip Torn, which is he's awesome. The only, and it, the only thing I remember about Robocop 3 is isn't there one of the girls from uh, Law and Order is in that, right? Um, maybe. And uh, Robocop gets a jetpack. That's all I remember. Robocop gets a jetpack, and there are uh, samurai androids that are fighting Robocop with, with samurai swords. Yeah. Wait a minute. How is this not the greatest movie ever made? <laughs> because it was the the budget was cut in half. That's why. And, and uh, the script it, was shit. Yeah, right. And the yeah. script was shit, and uh, yeah, which is sad because that kind of like effectively ended uh, Fred Decker's directing career, who actually did Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps, and he's actually really good. <laughs> but uh, Monster yeah, Squad should be on our list, by the way. Yeah. Well, we'll put it on the list. The budget for this was thirty five million. It made forty five point seven, and. Who knows how much even of that was eaten by promotional costs and stuff to advertising and shit. So yeah. it, it was not a big, big return. Well, I will mention one little tidbit here. The scene in which Robocop open fires around the head of someone who is smoking, after which he says, thank you for not smoking, was actually licensed and run as a public service announcement ahead of several different films in many non-smoking movie theaters during the summer movie season of that year. So this movie, if anything, it was basically just used as propaganda for the anti-smoking campaign. (laughs) I remember that was in the uh, ads on, like, HBO, like the the little, uh, like, between the movies, uh, they'd they'd show ads of, like, things, and that was, like, the scene that they would show... As like to advertise RoboCop two, like making it seem like it's a much more interesting movie <laughs> than it is, you know. And don't like I don't even want to talk about the police union stuff in this because uh, like they like oh RoboCop like you know sacrifice himself like Jesus to save a you know to to save us and they carry him inside and there's like the camera like points down and they're looking at like they're walking all over their protest signs and now like yeah we're fine working for a fraction of what we used to make and our pensions don't matter because like, that's just how important Robocop is and go fuck yourself writers of this movie. Like that's yeah. how I feel about that. You know? You're taking a pay cut creep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're coming with me. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie, honestly, I do like the villain. I like Kane. I like Tom Noonan. Uh, Tom and Noonan I, is great. Yeah, and and I, I I actually I do like the fighting the big robot shit. It's actually pretty fucking good. I I, I think part of it is just because I'm a old school kind of lover of stop motion that that kind of always yeah. gets me. But still, no, this movie really doesn't fucking hold up. There there's fun stuff in it. Like it's it's yeah. not like if you can if you can sit and watch it and not really pay much for it and um, you know just kind of idly let it pass over you, you will be fairly entertained. But yeah. like to prepare for a podcast for it and say, what am I going to talk about with this film? It's like, you know, it kind of yeah. <laughs> disappears, you know? Yeah. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons. And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC Podcast. 
You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs> Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms. To see you will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. We're going to jump into Predator 2 now from 1990. Los Angeles, 1997. It's the hottest summer on record. Pollution is choking the city. The gangs control the streets. It has not been a nice day! As bad as things are, they're about to get worse. Much worse. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Incredible. Whoever did this took out four men armed with machine guns by hand. 
You don't know what you're dealing with. Other world life forms drawn by heat and conflict. He's on safari. Lions. Tigers. The bears. Oh my. Gary Busey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. Directed by Stephen Hopkins, written by Jim Thomas, starring Kevin Peter Hall as the Predator. Danny Glover is Lieutenant Mike Harrigan. Gary Busey <laughs> is Peter Keyes. Ruben Blades is Danny Ar... Yeah, your last name. Archuleta. Uh, Archuleta, okay. There we go. Uh, Maria Conchita Alonso is Leona Cantrell. Bill Paxton as Jerry Lambert. Robert Davey as Captain Phil Heineman. Adam Baldwin as Garber. Kent McCord as Captain B. Pilgrim. Morton Downey Jr., as Tony Pope and Calvin Lockhart as King Willie. And uh, we have Paul with us. How are you doing, Paul? Hi. I'm <laughs> You're back. You're fucking back. I'm fi- yeah, I'm kind of back. I'm a hovering, like, white shadow. I'm kind of back. People don't realize... Back. People people don't realize the lengths we went to to get you back. Daniel and I, we, we, we kind of made this pretense that, oh, we couldn't schedule an episode the last two weeks or whatever, all this bullshit. Honestly, we were actually in the Himalayas. Yep. Mm-hmm. We had Sherpa guides leading us up to a fucking Yeti cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had to bring Paul back. We had to convince him that, no, the Yeti life is not for you, sir. You are a Sasquatch, and you need to be back in the woods in North America. I know. Well, and we brought him back. Yeah, unfortunately... I, I was drinking old wine that night, and you snuck up on me. Or I would have caught you first, and I would have ran away. But you know, I had a yeah. hard night, so yeah. it's okay. Well, We're good. But you're back, back. But you're back here. It's now indentured uh, slavery, servitude, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, you're back to talk about Predator Two with us. And uh, yes, what yeah. a, what a way to come back. You know, the triumphant return of Paul to talk about the second Predator movie. Yeah, <laughs> we're good. It's okay. We're good. We're fine. Yeah, we're good. I have watched it, but I watched it in like 15 years, so we're good. So it's, it's I'm back in form. We're yeah, it's par, it's par for the course. It's like you never left. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel, your synopsis of Predator 2, sir, if you will. This is the film that results from a thorough mixing of a near-future urban hellscape dystopia, the War of the Worlds, the most dangerous game, and racial politics that wouldn't feel particularly out of place at a Trump rally. Michael R. Harrigan, Danny Glover, is a badass plays by his own rules L.A. cop who was first noticed by the titular alien predator, Kevin Peter Hall, after he saves two wounded police officers and disperses a skirmish in a turf war between rival Colombian and Jamaican drug cartels. The predator is making particular sport of the gangs, first murdering an entire warehouse of the Colombians, and then fighting their leader being ritualistically murdered by a Jamaican food posse, massacring the Jamaicans as well. Harrigan begins investigating the Predator zone as he begins to find evidence of the otherworldly presence, notably a spear tip that a forensic scientist tells him does not correspond to anything on the periodic table. Apparently, the LAPD has high-end atomic absorption spectroscopy techniques for routine forensic analysis. 
It wouldn't be much of a surprise, as sniffing around the case and butting heads with Harrigan, especially Agent Peter Keyes, Gary Busey, who was working on a high-tech task force to capture the Predator after the events of the first film. Keyes and his team of special agents have set a trap for the Predator in a slaughterhouse, relying on technology built from their belief that the Predator can only see in the infrared to protect them. Unfortunately for them, the Predator has the ability to switch spectra with his own technology and slaughters all but Harrigan and Leona Cantrell, Maria Conchita Alonso, who is a fellow LAPD detective and was spared due to her pregnancy. Harrigan and the Predator play a pitched game of cat and mouse in the final 20 minutes of the film, including a bit in which the Predator has a limb cut off and must cauterize his wounds most painfully. Finally, inside the Predator's spacecraft, Harrigan finally manages to kill the Predator with his own throwing disc and is surrounded by a dozen other Predators, eyeing him warily. Finally, Wayne gifts Harrigan with an antique flintlock pistol, showing the great age of the Predators and their general respect for good sportsmanship, I suppose. Harrigan escapes the ship as it takes off and is presumably left with a hell of a lot of paperwork for his <laughs> trouble. <laughs> Hopefully the guy gets to take a fucking bath first before he does the paperwork. Goddamn. <laughs> I'll just start off like we were talking previously in Robocop 2 how uh, there's this sort of nostalgia thing. I have a lot of nostalgia for this because I actually saw this in the theaters the first year it came out. And, oh, nice. And so I still have a lot of love for this film. And unlike Robocop 2, I think this film actually holds up really fucking well. And yeah, I, th- I think this is like a proper way a sequel should be done. It does not need the first film to in- inform it in, in any way. It, it it works. If you went in this not seeing the first one, you would not be confused. There would be nothing that would uh, just like set you off. Like you, you could watch the whole thing and follow everything going on. Uh, actually, I'll throw it over to you first, Paul, since you're returning. Uh, when's like the first time you saw this, and uh, what are your sort of general thoughts on this one? Well, the first time I saw it was um, it was from a movie theater. I mean, it wasn't from the movie theater like you, but it was a it was a rental. It was a movie rental. And I watched it after uh, my dad showed me The Predator. So we mm-hmm. went and we brought in Predator 2. And I have to agree with you. It's kind of odd because uh, when I watch when I watch it now especially, well, now being like, you know, 25 years ago or 15 years <laughs> ago, but like now, like when I watch it again, when I watched it again, bought my own a copy of it, it was like really kind of funny because I was, I was like, am I watching Lethal Weapon or am I watching – I don't know what I'm watching. Because <laughs> I just get this Lethal Weapon vibe every time I watch it now. Because I, unfortunately, I've been tainted. But I would just see Danny Glover and a gun, and he's too old for this fucking shit. So I mean, that's it's Lethal Weapon, but it's great. I like the film. I, I completely agree with you. It stands on its own. Uh, I always think these films are a little bit bombastic in the way the way L.A. in the film. I believe it was L.A. they were in. Mm-hmm. L.A. Yeah. But uh, it just. It, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of what I hear on the radio of what Mexico's like with the drug cartels and shit like this. So I was like, I always think I was like, is L.A. that apocalyptic? Where literally there's rocket launchers going through the streets and shit. Like, uh, and if it is, I make sure I'll never go there. So double check. <laughs> this is kind of what Trump wants you to believe will happen if he doesn't build his wall. Like that, that's the this okay. kind of the, the far flung future of 1997. Everybody, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> escape from L.A. Basically, yeah, escape from L.A. is probably damn. That's actually it, it's kind of it kind of makes you feel that's like Trump. you should have paired that with this almost. But uh, yeah, Daniel, you're sort of initial. <laughs> Daniel, your sort of initial thoughts on this one? This worked for me as a film better. Kind of rewatching it than Robocop Two. I think Robocop Two is more interesting and in, in kind of like what it's going for, you know, kind of politically and, you know, under the surface. But I think Predator 2 is the more effective kind of, uh, like, just fun rewatch. Deeply, deeply racist. Like, I mean, just, just 
horrifyingly racist, but like slightly, slightly um, subverted by the fact that Danny Glover they they uh, treated him as a credible action star for a couple of for a couple of years after Lethal Weapon Two came out, and suddenly it's like, oh, Danny Glover. He can make an action film, and suddenly Predator 2 has Danny Glover as an action star. I actually really like Danny Glover as a, as a kind of oh, lead yeah. in this film. He's really good here. Um, I actually like Danny Glover in general. I actually have a, a, a kind of an affection for Danny Glover. Just I don't. I I was looking at his films, and I'm like, I don't know why, except I just loved the Lethal Weapon, the first three Lethal Weapon movies as a kid, mm-hmm. and I just like loved Danny Glover because of that. Well, um, yeah, he's got a, he's got a very good fatherly figure too. I mean, kind of like my dad. They say he's not my dad, but I don't buy it because mm-hmm. you know, just because he's black doesn't mean he's my not my biological father. You bring up the Lethal Weapon connection. Isn't he more playing like Mel Gibson's character in those films? Yes, he is. No, he's, so he's doing the action and bitching about it. So it's like he's doing both characters. Yeah. I love his trunk. Is that is that standard equipment for every cop car? Like you open the trunk well, and it's like a complete in, arsenal. In this in this like kind of you know near future nineteen ninety seven. Like and this is and this is kind of what I was I was avoiding. Sorry, I know Paul, you weren't here for for the Robocop two discussion, but like this was made in that era when you know Middle America believed that the cities, the inner city, the the scary inner city. I'm doing air quotes for the podcast listening audience who will never see it. <laughs> the scary inner city was this terrible thing where black people were just going to stab you in the face. I have been to Harlem and I have not been stabbed in the face. So. Um, See, that's inaccurate, yeah. That's, yeah. Your face um, has not been stabbed. Not been stabbed at all, you know. Although I have a beard, so maybe, you know, there was a, like... A... <laughs> yeah, the knives came, but the beard... Protected the yes. <laughs> yes. Dude, ultimate beard deflection. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's this very um, kind of weird dystopian idea that's presented in this that just doesn't reflect reality at all. Like, there's two different gangs in this film. There's there's the Latin American gangs, and then there's the Jamaican The, the Colombians and the Jamaicans, yeah. Yeah, yep. and the Jamaicans are actually based on a real gang that did not operate in L.A. at all. They up, I think they operated in, like, Houston and places like that, apparently. There, there, were, there actually were kind of, like, Jamaican voodoo gangs to some extent, probably not as nearly anything, like, depicted in the film. And the Colombian, the sort of Latin American, Colombian, whatever, depicted in this are, like, Colombian cartel gone crazy kind of thing because the cartels don't really operate, like, presented in this film either. They don't, they don't I mean, make themselves as noticeable, you know. Actual, actual, like, criminal organizations, they, I mean, they go to war over turf, but not like this. I mean, even if yeah. you if you read but, about, like, um, the way that crime in Buenos Aires and that sort of thing works, like, it, City of God, I don't know if you guys have seen City of yeah. God. Yeah. City of God is, like, the real version of kind of the way that, that crime gangs work, and it's not like pitched, like, paramilitary battles between, you know, like, armies of... I mean, yeah, rocket launcher. Right, right. I mean, it's just... And, and this is... This is kind of... And, and it is just, like, this is what white people are scared of, you know? And that's kind of, like, that fundamental, like, disconnect that I have with both of these films, but particularly with Predator 2, because it's just deeply uncomfortable in some really, really um, fundamental ways. Once you get past that, it's actually a really good, effective little action movie. Mm-hmm. But it but it does mean, like, oh, wow, I've got a lot to just, just completely step over in terms of watching. Uh, do, you think, do you think they also did that so it doesn't bore them too much between the Predator moments? You can't just have regular street cop drama. 
you know, yeah, would be well, a little bit too boring. Well, well, I th- yeah, I think you make a good point there, Paul. That's Adrenaline that's what thrill ride. Both these films are basically the ass end of the 80s action boom, where there's just a lot of really bombastic glamorization and, uh, like, stereotypical bullshit put in here that's just typical fucking 80s action film stuff that... You know, mm-hmm. sort of the vestiges of that kind of shit, right? Mm-hmm. It sort of comes and goes so quickly that you can't even really take it seriously. It's like it's mm-hmm. you have that opening sequence, and there's a lot of action in it. Then it sort of goes deeply into the sort of same stuff you saw in the first Predator film, where it becomes more of a mm-hmm. almost like a slasher film to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Right. right. One thing. One thing I was actually surprised with, like films today, if they did the sequel. In my opinion, the one thing that would have been the two things would have been upped, and this one didn't up it as much as I thought it would have, is the gore and like if there was new, you know what I mean? Like usually like this more like crazy ass gore, and they like kind of like try to smear their lack of knowing what the fuck they're doing with tits, you know, a little bit more in in more yeah. sequels that I see today. This well, one just bumped up all the action as much as it could. There are tits in this film. There there is that sequence in the. No, there uh, are tits. Yeah. Yeah, the Colombian drug lord here has his uh, girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> there, there's the nude girl for no reason. Like, unless she's, yeah, she's, the, the, she's the, I, and, and I appreciate that. I do. Uh, yeah. yeah, the the, uh, the apartment was the apartment shootout area. You kind of well, like, well, she's 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 there to be to be traumatized and be naked and to uh, to tell the uh, Latin American <laughs> that Diablo came and and killed everybody and. Uh, and that is uh, that. Actually, that's uh, Terry. Uh, her last name's Weagle or Weagle or something like that. She she was actually yeah. in a lot of sort of like titty comedies and horror movies and stuff yeah. at, at oh, the yeah. time. So basically, um, like, it's like every, every girl that I've ever dated ends up traumatized and naked, kind of like that. <laughs> I gotcha. Good good record. <laughs> Funny you mentioned upping gore and stuff like this. This film went through a multitude of cuts. Apparently, the gore was too hardcore for it at some point. <laughs> This this was the first film to be given the newly institutioned NC-17 rating. Actually, that it had, they actually cut it down to uh, get that rating away. This was the first one to fall under that from the uh, what MPA or whatever. So that's interesting. I find I find uh, you know like like Paul kind of mentioned it, the trunk full of um, you know assault rifles and shit. Standard weapons, no standardized uniforms. You are a rebel. Yeah, and like they're all rebels. They all like. Do you actually wear that to work? Like, there's okay, shit like, that they're, like, they're wearing. Okay. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Whoa! Well, we'll go to Daniel about the weapons, and then we're going to go to Danny Glover's wardrobe after that. When I, when I, when I think, I, I will happily talk about Danny Glover's wardrobe because it's amazing, and I want to dress <laughs> like that every day. What I find, what I like, the moment that I remember from that opening, like, 20 minutes or so is just the bit to where Danny Glover is in the car and he's, like, driving and screaming. Like, he's ducking down. He's ducking his head, like, out of the side of the vehicle and, like, screaming like angry black man during yeah. the entire, like, you know, and, and like, like shooting his gun or something. Danny Glover tells <laughs> it. He is going full on. And I completely buy the moment, like, in character, but then I'm like, my God, what was on the page for this? Like, I really want to read the script and then watch this and go, <laughs> what did? What was this, like, Danny Glover just going, like, I'm going to be the angry black man in this film? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Black man drives angry, shoots gun. Now go yeah, with well, it. I mean, like, listen, like, listen it, was, it was 1990, somebody had to do it. 
I literally, I was literally gonna reference Rodney King when I was uh, writing this, like the synopsis, and then realized that was a year later. Like this yeah. figures the Rodney King stuff and like all the all the you know all those kind of things. So, I mean, that's interesting that they were thinking of it on that level of like the LAPD and violence and all that sort of thing before you know the Rodney King beating and all that sort of thing and I, I don't I'm even just like I don't even know if they were thinking that hard about it I think they were thinking that this is black dirty Harry I, th- I think right. that was kind of the kind of the idea right like I mean I, I wonder I wonder at what stage Danny Glover was brought in I wonder if this character was written as you know, kind of generic you know loose cannon cop and then cast Danny Glover from the Lethal Weapon connection, and then it just takes this really interesting other dimension from that. Well, they had a lot of revisions on this, because originally they wanted to bring Arnold Schwarzenegger back. I think... Uh, the, the, no, <laughs> he, he left the jungle and became a hero cop in 1997. Los he, be, he, he became a black cop in Los Angeles, yeah. <laughs> he was going to play it in blackface, I know it. <laughs> No, no, no. His, his final line in the first Predator, wasn't it? No, but like the original idea is, okay, we're going to bring Arnold Schwarzenegger back in some form. The, like I said, there's a lot of revisions of the script, apparently. Um, <coughs> originally, he wanted to bring him back. He's like, okay, I don't like the director, I don't like the script, so I'm not coming back. So they're like, okay, Arnold's not coming back. There was a version of the script, apparently, where he was going to be uh, the Gary Busey character, where he was, like, Dutch, but head of that team now to try to catch Ooh, the new Predator. That's apparently. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they never did any of that shit, so, you know, he was gone. The, and, the one thing I, I'm actually glad is they didn't, because the one thing is no matter how outlandish and crazy he can be at times, I like when Gary Busey is in films. This was so, just after his motorcycle accident. This was the first film he did after that, where he had the brain injury from his motorcycle yeah. accident. And he's good at this. He's like, really good at this. You, you don't see the crazy Gary Busey of years later. Like, it's still Gary Busey in this. I mean, like, I, I, su- I suspect that that brain damage... I, I don't want to be ableist here, but Gary Busey is legitimately brain damaged today. Like, like mm-hmm. there's no question <laughs> in my mind. And, I mean, I actually feel really bad for him. He's just built a latter-stage career out of people thinking he's funny because he just can't think anymore. But Gary Busey was a legitimate talent back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean one of my favorite here. films is Silver Bullet. Yeah, Silver Bullet, yeah. I like him as an actor. I always believe it. He's always believable for me, no matter how what it, what he's portrayed as back in those films. He, he, he was in the first Lethal Weapon film, and he's in uh, yes. Nicholas Rogue's Irreversible. I mean, Irreversible. Yeah. He's phenomenal in that. It's it's weird. It makes me think that it's a combination of drug abuse or of some sort and brain damage that yeah. kind of plagued his later career. Oh, Cause, absolutely, Because I mean, he did a, he did a string of movies in the early nineties that you know he was playing villain parts and stuff like that. I mean, he was in the first Under Siege and he was fucking great in that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't see you don't see the brain damage, quote unquote, Gary Busey until like much later, like late nineties. And then into the 2000s, where he becomes a fucking reality show joke, right? So, right. I mean, maybe. Oh God, I don't know. It, it's 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 hard to talk. Way like, to make I, fun of a guy with brain damage. Yeah. A reality <laughs> show joke. Oh. I mean, sleep at night. God. I mean, goddamn. Goddamn. <laughs> It, well, it's he's, hard. To... He's built a career out of being a reality show joke at this point. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was like. 
I mean, I don't like to question that, but it is kind of like, to what degree is that? Is he just playing a role at this point, you know? I, I, I don't want to speculate. I, I just want to remember the Gary Busey that I love. <laughs> the, the Gary Busey was doing all these great films. I mean, he, he, he's really good in this. I mean, he's this isn't like a difficult role. This isn't like, you know, some like, you know, but... There is a subtlety to this performance. There is a. There is a. This is. He's really good. You know. Mm-hmm. I hate that he's a punchline now because back in the day he was actually quite good. This film is like more RoboCop than RoboCop Two, and and I and I mean that in the way that this one has that more cynical kind of uh, look on like future society that then RoboCop Two even does. Like this kind of picks up what RoboCop was doing. And does it better than RoboCop 2 in a certain way, like where it's talking about the police force, the gang violence, even and the, the, the the tabloid, right? Yeah, the tabloid of Morton Downey Jr. Like this, this film just, I think it brings it together a lot better than RoboCop 2 did. RoboCop 2, where it's this sort of fragmented shit that were probably in previous versions of the script that just sort of came out and were not connected together. This one actually feels like it actually has something to say about it, and it actually kind of well, RoboCop Two, RoboCop Two, where they go, um, yeah, we need a transition point in this portion of the script. Throw in a joke about the ozone hole. Whereas this, the Morton Downey Jr. character is kind of integrated into the script. He's he's kind of there several times, distracting him as a kind of central theme that the. Um, Bill Paxton character is is going through. You know, ultimately, you have a much more kind of interesting dynamic. Uh, I still don't think the film really goes anywhere with it. Um, but this is also this is also at that moment where the rise of the kind of the tabloid uh, TV show was was happening. So like a current affair was See, uh, you know uh, like new at this point. Well, like, uh, this, is, this is the beginning of Bill O'Reilly's career, right? You know, what I mean, you know, well, like. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it this way. It doesn't necessarily make like great points about it, but I think it reflects the current culture better than RoboCop 2 does. Yeah, no, it definitely reflects like what shitty tabloid journalism looked like in 1990 in, mm. in, a, in a very clear way and in a, a much more like realistic way than like their, their look at the gang violence did. If there was horrifying gang violence happening on the streets of Los Angeles in 1997, this is how a current affair would have covered it. Yes, I agree with that. Okay, so I'm just going to go into this, because this is kind of a sticking point. With it. Like, this is one of the negatives of the film, honestly, that I feel like it doesn't focus on the group of cops all that well. And I, I just kind of want to know what your feelings are on this, like the group of cops and their sort of interplay in their stories. Like, it feels like it sort of touches on them, but it doesn't really bring them together as well as it could have. Anyone wants it, to jump in? To me, they just story. seem like, I mean, they have to be there, so they feel like there's a connection when they die. That kind of thing a little bit more, just kind of like the, the group of the, in the first films. But, uh, I mean, the Bill Paxton character is the one with more interaction. It's kind of interesting that he got killed by and the Predator. It's pretty good. Well, yeah, he's the only guy to be killed by a Terminator, a Predator, and an alien. That's pretty good. He has I mean, that distinction, pretty, yeah. Yeah. And he get tra- changed into a giant pile of shit in Weird Science, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. By the way, Lance Hendrickson... All you have to do, star in the next Terminator film and star in the next Alien film, get killed. Just, yeah. you know, get snuffed out. You'll be up there with Bill Paxton. Up there with Bill Paxton is not a uh, phrase <laughs> you hear often. You oh, know. Come on, Bill, 
Bill Paxton's awesome, to, to though. That Bill Paxton, I actually, I really yeah. like Bill Paxton. I really like Frailty. I don't know what you guys feel about Frailty. I love Frailty. I love fucking Frailty. I, I, I never, never saw Frailty. Oh, god damn, Paul, All you right. need to see that film. We got to the Demons. Demons, yes. You, you what, need what, to see what, that. When was that. Was there a two in front of that? 2,000? Yeah. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. It's hard me, you know. Like, one, nine, seven. What? Pa- Paul, take my word for it. This is one of the best horror movies made in the last 25 years. It is an exceptional fucking okay. horror film. If it has to be if it has to be one film, then Frailty will be that film. We have to cover it, because I think you're going to love it. Beautiful. I, re- I really wish we had gotten, and I'm, I'm actually going <laughs> to... Since I shit on Blade Runner uh, a few weeks ago, um, I'm, you know, I, I wish we had gotten more of a sense of uh, Harrigan, of Danny Glover's character, and the Predator as kind of adversaries. I almost mm-hmm. wish we didn't even have all that stuff in the... Like, it's not, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. Um, Bill Paxton is fun. Like I like Bill Paxton yeah. in the film, but like there's not. You know, ultimately, <laughs> it doesn't connect very well with the kind of overall, you know, plot. Even I was gonna say themes, but there are no themes. It's real. Like it doesn't connect mm-hmm. with the rest of the film. I would really like to see more of Danny Glover's character, like. Yeah, the cat and mouse between the predator and the yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like the the female character. I mean, this, she just unfortunately she, to me when I watch the film, she's just there to to show that he won't kill a pregnant girl. I'm like that. Yeah. I mean, that's about it. And there's not really that too much. There's not too much other things going on. I mean, they try to they try to play on sexual tension a little bit with Bill Paxton and things like that. But other than that, they don't really play too much on it. What are you guys' thoughts on the predator itself? As just like a, a a character compared to the first film because I, I've seen some s- reviews and stuff a lot about how it's more urbanized, more ethnic almost. Like the Predator is kind of designed that way to be more like almost like Latino in a, in a weird way. And you, yeah. this is this is the first instance where you see like the Predators sort of have like a uh, sort of a caste system where you have you see different like versions like of the race. They have different variations or whatever, you know, just like we do here on Earth, you know. Maybe maybe I'm just one of those guys who doesn't look into all that bullshit so much. Yeah, I didn't well, notice it. I'm like, maybe I'm just one of those guys that can just take things for what they are without piecing them apart and making it a problem. But well, uh, the Predator looked like the Predator to me when I watched the first one, so I don't know. Well, yeah, well, here's the thing, because I didn't really get it either. Like, I, I was reading, like, people's thoughts on this, and I was like, okay, yeah, the Predator looks different. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it definitely looks a lot different than the first Predator. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things is the special effects department had a lot more time to develop this Predator than mm-hmm. they did in the first film, apparently. Yeah, I mean, but, this is this is the fence-jumping Predator, and this is the, the reparation-check Predator, and this is like, really? Are you going to go there? It's the Predator. I don't see, like, I've seen people, like, Outraged, like, oh, this is like this kind of a racist ethnic stereotype predator. I was like, I don't really see that. The predator definitely looks different than the first well, predator, but well, maybe, well maybe. I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, <laughs> the predator is like an alien, like this is the alien with dreadlocks, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. Mean, you know, there's always going to be a racial element to that. Well, maybe on this compliment, on this, on this planet, it's a compliment. You know, people need to realize that. You know, we're talking about. <laughs> Intergalactic, you know, you know, diplomacy here, people. Just calm down. Well, well, here's the thing. All, all the different predators that are depicted in all the sequels. They all have that. I, I, I don't even want to say it's fucking hair. Like, it's no, not I always consider it like, yeah, like a tentacle kind of. Yeah, they, they have the, they have that, they have that dreadlock style. 
Like that. That's yeah. just the right, aesthetic. Right. I mean, but that's not. I mean, that's not like. I mean, you can always create like in-universe reasons for it. It's an, an alien with dreadlocks is always going to read as black. You know, like if like you if you look if you look at it that way. If you yeah. if you have that mentality that wants to look at it that way, I agree with you. Well, I, mean, I you just want, you know like if like, you want to see, if you if someone wants to see something, they'll always see it if they want to see it. That's how I look at it too. You know, it's all about the person, the individual. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand kind of where you're coming from with that, but there's also just that kind of, like, there's somebody, you know, Stan Winston created this character and, like, put that in there. And we can mm-hmm. say, like, okay, what was going through Stan Winston's mind when he, like, wrote, like, oh, or when he, like, drew a drawing or created a model. Yeah. Like, that racist you know? bastard! Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not it's not like saying, like, Stan Winston is personally racist. It's saying, like, what kind of ideas was he, like, kind of drawing on when he did that. Mm. And he got, like, oh, there's this alien in the jungle hunting down a bunch of, you know, Marines with dreadlocks. Oh, this is a, you know, like, savage alien uh, cannibal, essentially, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Like, we, we can't, we don't have to say, like, oh, that's horrifyingly racist. We don't have to say even that's a bad thing. But I think that saying, like... This character is sort of coded as this, you know, like non-white ethnic character, is an important part of like where this character comes from. Well, plus you're you're, you're pinning it against these different gangs and stuff, and one of them, the Jamaican gangs. I mean, they have the dreadlocks, so you can put a little visual association there. Right. Um, well, and know, oh, the Jamaicans are totally treated in a, a racist way in this film. I mean, they're as they're almost... they should be. They're almost as bad as the uh, the voodoo guy in Major League, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's actually a good fucking poll there. Yeah. Oh, uh, boom. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I like I like the new Predator in this one. In the subsequent films you see like these different sort of casts of Predators. Official third Predator film, Predators. You actually see like a Predator that is the same as the jungle one. And it's just kind of interesting, like, to have they sort of built the sort of mythology around mm-hmm. different looks of these different th- different ones. But um, <coughs> this one is presented as more technologically advanced. This is this is a film that's presented as being 10 years from the first film, mm-hmm. 1997. Well, I like that because, you know, you always have to keep the edge up. Okay, you got screwed up this way, so you got to keep the edge up. You got to keep your technology up. Learn the, they learn the mistakes from the other one. And then I kind of yeah. always took it like that. I like that. Well, well, it's kind of interesting because the way they present this one is this is presented as like a more young uh, predator in the species. Mm-hmm. Like this is a much more inexperienced predator. Um, he, ha- he has more technology at his uh, disposal compared to the first one. Like his stuff's more advanced. He's more ambitious. He's more reckless than the first I've predator. Ne- I've never looked at the predator as a cocky upstart before. I love it. Well, yeah. Well, the way the f- the ending of the film kind of presents it, it almost feels like he is the young one trying to prove himself to the older right. ones that mm-hmm. you see in the yeah. end of the film. Yeah, and he is more reckless. He exposes himself a lot more. Like he's mm-hmm. killing a lot more people than the first predator did. Like he he's just outright slaughtering gangs of people. And I think it kind of makes it more believable that Danny Glover could actually kind of defeat him because he's mm-hmm. a bit more younger and inexperienced and actually kind of smaller than some of the other Predators, so mm-hmm. it kind of works that way. 
Uh, he's like, he's like the, the little red dick kid of the Predators who's yeah. you know, kind of going off and like taking pot shots at squirrels, and then like a bear eats him. And the bear is Danny Glover. That's yeah. I, well, I like that you movie. also think it's you also think it too. Like the the his amped up killing is also being amped up by the violence around him because there's actually not as much violence around the predator from the original one because yeah. even though they got armed, like, you know heavily armed people the whole time, they're not actually fighting with people the whole movie. These guys are just shooting at each other the whole movie, and it just amp- that would amp up the predator to keep on you know taking skulls and killing people, you know, that kind of thing, too. So, pretty interesting. I like the cocky upstart thing. Loving that, though. Yeah, well, yeah, he jumps into the city environment, and there's this gang war, then there's the cops, and he he wipes out the two gangs, basically, and then he starts zeroing in on the cops. He goes against Danny Glover, and then he goes against uh, uh, Danny Boy. Uh, You know, and, like, he's, like, the first guy in the team that he kills. I I thought it was really interesting. Like, it did implement that sort of slasher film mentality to a certain degree uh, that was effectively done. And I think the first Predator did it as well, was really effectively done. Pick Uh, him off one by one. I like that. Yeah. Probably one of my favorite scenes in the film, a a scene that is, you know, taken from the first and you put it back again, is when uh, he has to... um, dress his wound because that was you know direct direct you know from the first film you have to have the medic kind of scene with the the predator and i love that scene in both films yeah because that was that nostalgia that you needed to connect yourself with the original film too so i liked it totally agree um i also like the uh just a callback to uh using recorded voices whether it's victims or potential victims he records the voices of people and uses them basically as like uh, game calls, like he game uses calls, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, he uses that way. Also uses his taunts as well, because I mean, as much as this predator is a hunter and considers people prey, it's not a stupid fucking alien. Like it, it knows that the people it's hunting on this planet are intelligent to some fucking degree. So there's kind of a game aspect where it's taunting people and. Uh, uh, making a game out of it as well, so uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, do anyone want to give sort of like their sort of final thoughts on this? Uh, you are one ugly motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear that a lot. <laughs> ah, see, there you go. Uh, overall, I think the film's good. The end of the film is great. I love the. I mean, I like the time they they he takes a little bit more time to show you polishing his trophies. I like when they actually get into the spaceship and you actually get to see this lineage of trophies from the aliens. You get to see the alien skull. Yeah. That's in the, I like that. Um, the only thing that bothers me is, you know, they've been here for so long and you kind of see all these skulls and all these little trophies and stuff from over time. It almost seems like the alien in this film, you know, if you really look at it, you kind of came back a little too soon. It's like, God, we've been here forever, but only been like two years and they're already back it feels like you know every 50 years or every 100 years it comes back to try to do something else but i always thought i was like oh wow you show this kind of lineage of aliens but they don't come back every year i would assume you have you know every 10 years 20 years 50 years they come back so i thought it was a little bit of a you know if i look at it i go wow yeah yeah they, they kind of make like allusions to like especially with the fact that the spaceship had like multiple predators in it that they right. were like a hunting party, and they were all proving themselves. Like some of them were going out and doing stuff, 
and some of them are just staying and like basically critiquing them, <laughs> like scoring them and shit. Um, and then you see like the old Predator, the one that hands Danny Glover the gun that shows that shit, we were back here like three, four hundred years ago, and this is how long we live, by the way, because some of us are like three to four hundred years old. Maybe not that old. Like, it depends on uh, depends on like space time, space travel. It, well, thing. it could be like passed down as well. Like, it might not be like yeah. his. Like, it could be like, oh, my, my parents gave this to me or something like that. So, I mean, I always interpret it as like that predator like killed somebody and took that trophy. Yeah, like, I think that's the reasonable interpretation of that. I don't think we're forced into that interpretation. And you're right; right like there could be like time dilation. Although that like predator that. has a patch on him that is a Korean War era military patch from the U.S. Oh, that's a, interesting. yeah. That one at least has been alive that long, and he's presented as an older predator to some degree. I've I've only seen this film like maybe two or three times, you know, like as a kid, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. This wasn't one I watched as much. And so kind of coming back to it, I always remember that ending scene of like the predator like giving him that the the, the, mm-hmm. the pistol. As like, Absolutely. oh my god, that's such a great moment. Yeah. And the but the rest of the film doesn't really live up to that. Like the, like it really is kind of this this really amazing moment. Of like a, almost a connection between these like characters and these two species and civilizations, but we're just left with more questions that aren't really answered. Like what's really going on, what's really happening, and, and it's almost like again, both of these films kind of suffer from the same problem. Like I almost wish that that moment had happened a third of the way through the film, and then we had like the rest of the film to like explore the consequences of that. Like I, uh-huh. I understand it's meant to be kind of ambiguous and it's meant to be kind of a like uh, wait for the sequel, kids. But at the same time, like once you introduce this entire like idea of these long-lived predators building this society uh, uh, based around like hunting intelligent game and hunting you know sapient creatures. But then don't deal with it at all. It does kind of become. What are you trying to say here? You know, I think I, I, I wish there was more of that. You know, uh, I did, I also didn't have a problem with it. I I actually liked that that came out at the end. I thought it worked perfectly. I I don't I didn't even think it had to be expanded upon. I I, I thought it was a good little kind of beat at the end that uh, mm-hmm. we've been here a long time and we've been doing this a long time and I think that's enough. That's kind of almost semi like a kind of Lovecraftian thing where these aliens have been operating outside of our reality and been doing things throughout our history that we're not even fucking aware of. I think it kind of works. Like, it, it just kind of adds a little bit of mystery to the whole thing. It does not necessarily set up a sequel, as far as I'm concerned, and honestly, I could have done without any more sequels, honestly. Right, I, I, th- right. I think I think it works perfectly well. I've avoided all the future sequels, so, like, I, I there are no more sequels, as far as I'm concerned. So. And, well... I will say Predators is actually pretty good. That is actually one worth watching. The the Predator versus Alien shit, eh, you can fucking avoid that with... Uh, I, like, I like the arcade game. I'll just say that. <laughs> some, some of the reasons this was even made was based on, like, the Predator versus Alien comic. I, I will mention, um... Epiladia Carrillo, who was, uh, I guess, uh, Anne or Annie from the first film. She actually does appear in this film, but just briefly in uh, the sort of 
monitor screens of uh, Gary Busey's truck there where he's uh, explaining to Danny Glover, this alien showed up before and this all this shit. Uh, there was actually scenes filmed with her that were basically cut out of the film that directly connected to the first film. So that's basically why this film kind of really doesn't reference the first film all that much. And honestly, it doesn't matter. It, like I said before, it stands on its own pretty well. You don't really even need the first film to know what's going on. Alan Silvestri reprised his soundtrack duties from the first film. So here, the the, the film sort of uh, holds up very well in the soundtrack department compared to Robocop 2, where you had a different guy doing shit. And uh, it kind of reprises the first soundtrack and adds to it. It's got that sort of cool uh, drunk jungle kind of beat thing going on. I even liked, like the opening sequence where uh, you, you hear the sort of soundtrack in the background where you kind of think, oh, we're still in the jungle. Oh, no, we're in L.A. all of a sudden where, you know, pans up and you see the city and shit. So It's well, one of the best shots in the film, honestly. Yeah. The yeah. urban jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I almost put urban jungle in my synopsis and then, like, decided against it. We're not we're not doing that today. It's basically what happened. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> but overall, it's, I think it's a film like you said a long time ago when we first started this. Uh, it's definitely a film that didn't need the first one, which I was surprised. I really was happy with the film overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah totally agree. Yeah. Um, budget was thirty-five million dollars, and uh, the box office for this one was fifty-seven point <coughs> one million. So it fared a bit better than uh, RoboCop Two, which actually had the same fucking budget. So yeah. Uh, fuck if I'm gonna go out with the soundtrack of either of these films. By the way, as much as I kind of liked the soundtrack for this one, even then I was like, eh, it's not that good. There was an initial part of the soundtrack here from an artist that is very of his time. I don't know if any of you guys remember him. He's called uh, Gerardo, and he did... (laughs) Rico Suave? Rico Suave. (laughs) We can just go out with that song, then. No, one one of his songs is on this, and we're going out on fucking Rico Suave. That's the only way (laughs) we can... Let's do it. Rico Suave. (laughs) Uh, Rico... So because and, and I did not pick up on this until rewatching it this week. I was like, there's this brief sequence outside of the fucking police station where just a segment of one of his songs come out. And it's like, is that that guy from the early 90s to rock? That must be him. I looked it up. It is fucking him. And it's like, okay, yeah, Rico, Rico Suave is the end song in this. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. That's, okay. that's that's an amazing decision, and I fully support it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find the series of podcasts, of which this is one, uh, over at oispaceman.com. Uh, we do Doctor Who, we do Red Dwarf, we do some Firefly. Eventually we'll do some more Firefly, hopefully next week. And uh, some bonus shit. We do a lot of podcast my wife and I listen to it if you want and uh, my wife and I also kind of uh, write uh, columns about sex and gender issues over at rudatorumpress.com so you can go check us out there right on Paul where can people find you on the interwebs uh, YouTube PA Brew News um, and for beer reviews whatnot that'll hopefully be started back up soon and on Facebook oil paintings by P. Rumaley and building the official page now paulromaley.com 
for more oil painting goodness. Awesome, and people should look up that shit and buy it because Paul's actually a very talented painter. Yes. He is. I agree. There. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I need I need something to, to plug on this show that people will actually give me money. I could use some money. <laughs> like, I need... Like, right. you know, people, people don't actually buy my shit. They just look at it and go, oh, that's nice. All right, that's fair. that's fair. <laughs> and, of course, uh, at the trail at the end, we'll tell you where to go for this podcast. You, you know, find us. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will recommend, of course, go to our Facebook page, TMB, the U.S. Uh, well, look for They Must Be Destroyed on Site on Facebook. And, oh, and we didn't talk about the Facebook group. Lee, uh, do we have a Facebook group? We do. Go visit us. They on should. Facebook? Oh, fuck. How did I forget is it, that? Is it's it called They Must Be Destroyed on Site? It is. is oh, it, my God. Do we, do, we have do we have interesting conversations from time to time where people yes. should uh, no. join in? No. Is that the best way to contact us and leave comments on it this is show? The, it is the single best way to contact us on the show and get your comments Woo-hoo! right on the air. And tell us how shitty we are. Yeah, and tell... Tell us we're crap. It it doesn't matter. Like we're not adverse to negative criticism. We will if you if you give us a fucking negative comment, if you if you're one of those fucking dicks who's gonna fucking shit on us, we'll fucking bring you up on this podcast. We'll we'll talk to you, we will critique your comment and tell you what a fucking wrong piece of shit you are. And I will send my new horde of colorful ponies after you. Yes. <laughs> Lee will show it to me in advance and I will write a detailed refutation. I promise. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. I'll probably ignore it and masturbate. <laughs> well, I will, I will masturbate. I will masturbate while writing a detailed refutation of everything you say. So that, my friends, is called multitasking. <laughs> That's why I have two hands. Oh, fuck. Okay, next week, guys, it's going to be the sex comedy series. We're going to be jumping right into it, and it's about goddamn time. And, uh, yeah. Let's watch the van again. <laughs> no, go to, uh, go to Badass Boobs and Body Counts and uh, do, look at their podcast on the van. They did the van recently. Yay. Listen to them. They did, um, they did, a, they did a very good episode on the van. They didn't mention the words ginger rapist, which I ginger was rapist. very disappointed in them for not saying ginger rapist. But they were, they any, were, any any upstart podcasters out there, if you ever want to do the van, make sure you do prom night right after it because there's a link. Yeah. There is a link. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fucking dick. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you, Paul, for coming back. And Yay! Yeah, and... Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back again (laughs) with the Sex Comedy Series. Tally-ho! Rico. Yo soy educado, soy un caballerito, un chico bien portado, un joven responsable y siempre bien vestido. Yo no sé quién ha mentido. I don't drink or smoke and into dope when I know coke.
you ask me how do I do it, I cope. My only addiction has to do with a female species. I eat them raw like sushi. No me gusta interno, mi estilo es moderno. Si me enterno, yo me enfermo. Mi apariencia es dura, vivo en la locura. No me vengan con tenuras. So please don't judge your book by its cover. There's more to being a lover. You gotta know how to deal with a woman that won't let go. The price you pay for being a gigolo. Rico. Suave. Rico. Suave. A ver, it's not a woman that can handle a man like me. That's why I juggle two or three. I ain't wanna commit. You can omit that bit. You pop the question, that's it. A ver, un, dos, tres, cuatro mujeres. Y la situación ahí no muere, no es un delito. Calmo mi apetito, como un llanto o un grito. So again, don't let my lyrics mislead you. I don't love you, but I need you. Would you rather have me lie? Take a piece of your pie and say bye, or be honest and rub your thighs. Rico. Suave. Rico. Suave. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched oispaceman.com, 
where you can find his sci-fi theme podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.